Hi, I'm Christopher Ward. Welcome to Famous Lost Words. Beside me, my co-host, the creator of the show, the one and only Tom Joker. Thank you, Christopher Ward. And across from me is Christopher Ward. He is a world-famous <laughs> former VJ, a world-famous mm. songwriter, a world-famous author. Wow. wow. You, have a, you have a second book that you're now flogging these days. So well, I'm going to ask you about that a little <laughs> bit later. Flogging. <laughs> such a lame term. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. Christopher, we have a great show, and uh, you're going to be telling us about some of these interviews that we have. First up, we're going to talk to you two, and about circa what year was this? It's actually not long after the release of their first album, Boy, you know, right. which came out in 1980. So very early 80s. And that's, you know, for, for me, this is one of the real joys of doing this show, is you get to hear artists in the most formative stages of their career, and sometimes you can hear and, and see the seeds of what they became and the attitudes and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. And it, definitely that's the case in this interview. Others sure. go through huge transformations, but sure. that's the fun of it. Right, and you too did go through huge transformations, at least three or four really notable ones. But at their, at their core, they were an idealistic Irish band that really wanted to say something. And boy, you can really hear it in this yeah, interview. it's all there. For sure. And speaking of artists at the very beginning of their careers, we're only going to go back 10 years, but this is to 2008 and a conversation with Lady Gaga. This is a great interview. I actually only heard it yesterday for the first time, and I'm just going, she's so Gaga. I remember when she came in, and she was dressed like in like a wild outfit, and everybody's going, <laughs> I like, bet. like, who the hell is that? And, of course, it yeah. is Gaga. It's Gaga at her finest, Gaga at, at the very beginning, but it's true her. I, I really like this segment, too, because I, I don't remember hearing interviews with her at that stage. Right. She's very warm. She's mm-hmm. very engaging, and she's really she's trying to make a case for the things that she believes in passionately. Yes. It's great, and, and she compares her music to an artist that I would never have expected it. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to hear about that All in right. a few minutes. It's, that's mm-hmm. that's great. And in our last segment, we've got a 1984 interview, one of the very first interviews by Corey Hart. This is great stuff to hear. And of course, we end it all with the wisdom of Dave. I can't wait. Okay, Christopher, let her rip. A group of friends in Dublin formed a band in 1976, and they called it Feedback. (laughs) Yeah. Well, then they changed it to The Hype, and I'm not sure which is worse. But fortunately, in 1978, the guitarist's older brother left the band. They became a quartet known as U2. Their first album, Boy, was produced by Steve Lillywhite. Now, he had worked with a lot of big names Mm -hmm. at that point, so this was quite a a good score for them to be able to work with Steve. He'd worked with Susie and the Banshees, he'd produced the Psychedelic Furs, and probably most notably, he'd done a Peter Gabriel record as well. So the album, for the most part, was well-received. It wasn't a breakthrough record by any means. That that took many years to come, but it Mm -hmm. was well-received, and people loved their shows because they started to see that fire, and they saw the passion that these guys brought to everything that they've done ever since. Sure, and I, I believe I Will Follow was on that album. That's right. That I the... Will Follow blew my mind when that came out because mm-hmm. it was it was rock and it was new wave and it was so passionate and the production was amazing. And then, of course, you know, they went on to do some very big, epic sounding records. And You mean they got bigger after Boy? <laughs> <The> Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this interview, Tom, takes place um, between Boy, the debut record, and the follow-up October, and finds this young band, for me, amazingly philosophical about what they're doing. Adam Clayton talks about the beginnings of U2. The band 
started very much in the way sort of uh, teenage gangs start. You know, it was sort of let's get something together. I mean, like the manifesto wasn't together or anything right. like that. And and so it was sort of here, here's a bass. You can be in charge of bass and that sort of thing. <laughs> Now, fortunately. And I have to say, in my defence over over this remark, at the time Bono didn't know that I couldn't dance. <laughs> so it was we, th these were all decisions based on total ignorance. It's now in retrospect that we realise what terrible chances we were. So Adam continues from here and talks about what it means to come from Ireland. Ireland is is different from England. England is comfortable compared to Ireland, and America is luxury compared to England. And I think when you come from basically an underdeveloped country, which is more or less what Ireland is, I mean, it's it's in bits, you know. Uh, I think when you come f from a place like that and you live there, you there is an urgency to what you're doing. Um, you do appreciate the privilege of your position and consequently you don't abuse it as much as as you can do if you live in California and... and are a successful performer or, or artist or whatever. And I think that's what it is. I think we see the best of both worlds when we're touring and then we go back to little old Ireland and, and see what a sorry state it's in and we, we remember our roots. Wow, very interesting. You know, I find that Irish artists are really deeply rooted in their country, I think, more so than perhaps North American artists. Of course, there's exceptions, right? Tragically hip, deeply rooted in Canadiana. Mm -hmm. But I do find that there, there's something about the Irish. There's such pride and there's such a deep connection to both uh, the people and the land and the culture that they come from. You know, I think there's similarities. I'm glad you s mentioned the Canadian band in association with that idea because it's a loyalty thing, but it's also we're so proud of the acts that go out and represent us worldwide. And I think the Irish feel similarly about yes. their acts. The mm. government there is very supportive of the arts, which helps, you know, bands to get a, you know, get some kind of momentum going earlier in their careers. Right. Um, the first album... Uh, oh, sorry, Bono. I want to talk about Bono. Sure. Because uh, he jumps in here. And... Um, He doesn't sound like a 20-year-old to no. me. He's like a guy who's been ruminating about all of these matters <laughs> yeah. for a long a time. A deep thinker, for sure. And he talks about who they represented in the early days. If you're attempting to be relevant and attempting to speak for for yourself, hoping to you know, bring in other people that, that, that really relate to what you're doing, then, yeah, I think it's important that you're of the same age. But it's not a problem because we've never... Um, portrayed anything but ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the album Boy is a representation of that adolescence and it's really saying goodbye to it. And it's it's the strength of us at the moment. But our music will change as we change and it will grow older as we grow older. And to be honest, if we grow old and we grow irrelevant, you know what I mean? I hope that two guys calling themselves Bono and the Edge belonging to a new era come in and say, listen, give up, you know, because we're here. And that is what makes it great. That's what makes rock and roll great, the change, the movement, new bands, plus old bands. But for the moment, you know, we're, we're 20 years old, and uh, it's a celebration of that and what that means. I'm sure our audience are going to grow with this as well. So that first album spoke about, for them, a, a certain specific time frame, the ages of 18 to 20, which, of course, is how old they were at the time. What we were trying to get across on the Boy album was, was slightly vague. You know, and slightly abstract as the thoughts between the ages of 18 and 20. And that's really the lifespan of that album. 
um, were quite vague, you know, and just making up my mind on certain issues. As a lyricist, there are things now that I've seen basically been throughout Europe throughout this country you're starting to see things and starting the perspective is growing getting older um and uh y you know <laughs> is uh, your voice going to last through this tour that's is my the voice question going to last through this tour but the point about it is is that um i, I feel stronger now and for more defined i think the lyrics will be more pointed in the next album now they had the very good fortune of working with an experienced producer, Steve Lillywhite, on actually all three of their uh, their first albums. Here's how that came about. We desperately needed a producer for a single, and we were like scheduled to do the single, which was a day without me, which was on the boy album. We were scheduled to do that in about sort of three days' time, and we still hadn't found a producer we were happy with. So we knew we'd heard the name Steve Lillywhite, and it sounded good. Mm -hmm. So we said, okay, let's. Let's talk to Lily White and see if he's into it. Um, so we spoke to him and he said, I want to come to a show and meet the guys and then I'll, I'll think about it. So he came to Galway, which is a pretty out-of-the-way place to go to. Um, and we played probably one of the worst concerts of our lives. Um, and there was probably about sort of 15 people there. Um, but for some reason, Steve saw something, um, something that he obviously realised he would be able to bring out in the records and, and and bring through, which I think is very much the probably the personality and, and and the commitment of the group. And we all got on like a house of on fire. So we did the single and it was just natural that he would end up doing the album. Okay, this is an odd moment. You you remember you know how when there's a sea change in, in, in music, all the bands that were popular get kind of swept into the past. Yes. Punk did that. Yes. And so bands, bands like, like the Rolling Stones or who that oh, kind of thing. Oh, they were yeah. called dinosaurs, dinosaurs that's right? right. <laughs> and, you know, dismissed. Right. Including the Who. Well, Mono is absolutely unapologetic about his love for Won't Get Fooled Again. I noticed in the Rolling Stone article about you guys, <clears throat> which is amazing right there, that that magazine is writing about a new band already. Um, that That is a sign that, that you know, I you know, are destined it, for big things in North America. But anyway, you had mentioned about what a great song Won't Get Fooled Again is. Yeah. And for many of your peers to acknowledge the who and to say, hey, they're a great band, that was a great song, is taboo, uh, a sort of taboo I anyway. I care you know? less what people think yeah. or what rules people make. We're only you know, if these rules are only there to be broken, and I can't stand people trying to you know get us to put on a conservative suit. I mean a uniform. They want us to dress up, you know, like punks. We're not a punk band. Right. You know, we're not even a new wave band. We're just U2. Mm -hmm. It's part of a whole new explosion that's happening um, all over England, all over America. There are people who are getting up and doing what they want to do, and we're not listening to anybody. And uh, that was, in fact, the theme of Won't Get Fooled Again. You know, it's such musical snobbery that he even has to defend it. You know what I mean? Christopher, mm -hmm. I like the song Afternoon Delight by the Starland <laughs> Vocal Band. And if you don't, if you don't like, if you're going to judge me for that, uh -huh. I'm going to show you a finger on my left hand, oh, okay? Boy, boy. He not Adam, I'm worried. He not only Adam likes Starland Vocal Band, he's going to defend it before I say anything about it. Exactly. It's the way, I actually call it, my, my son once said to me, Dad, what's the worst song you like? I said, Afternoon Delight. So at least I acknowledge it's a bad song, but I still like it. Okay, I got care. a bad one for you. Okay. I really like We Built This City. Oh, my God! <laughs> Adam's That's going, it. me too. I'm leaving. <laughs> there he goes, friends. 
Okay. <laughs> the rest okay. of the show is all mine. Okay. So all you right. Know. So we're gonna Adam. Let's dig up some segments of the uh, Starship if we can. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Boy, you know that that's my least favorite song in history. No, right? I had no it, idea. It, it actually is. I hate that song more than any other. And one of these days, give me five minutes and I'm going to tell you why, okay? Oh, getting the feeling here. <laughs> All right. This next clip is a short one, but I, I love this because Bono um, talks about their attitude towards live performance. We give 100%. There's no holding back. Nobody leaves or very few people get out alive without being involved in the performance in some way or without responding to it. Mm. I'd like people to either hate us or love us. And boy, oh boy, if a band ever like left it out on the stage with for a live performance, it was you too, always. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think of that performance that came a few years later at Live Aid, mm-hmm. which was just unbelievable. It's like they took the power of a two-hour concert and packed it into 12 minutes of yeah. show. Yeah, exactly. I think I think there's a few standouts from Live Aid. Of course, Queen reclaimed all of their greatness in that performance. Yeah. And you two turned everyone's head on that day and they just everybody was blown away by the fact that they were so good, so compelling and so passionate live. Mhm. Uh, here's a final quote from Adam Clayton. He talks about playing in a poorer part of Dublin. In Dublin, there is a big slum area. Um which is sort of a lot of one-parent families who, who sort of have about 15 children and they're living in, in very squalid situations and, and there's no law and order down there. The police won't even go anywhere near it, you know, very heavy part of town. Um, and we had a high profile at the time and, and the organisers said, look, will you do a set for them? You know, it would mean an awful lot to them. And we said, of course, you know, if, if we can be of help in that kind of a situation, they are deprived families. And it was heavy. I mean, we, when we went down there to take our equipment down, I mean, there were sort of 15-year-old kids on the back of the truck sort of trying to crank open the back with crowbars and stuff. I mean, very wild. Um, but we went on and did the show. And, in fact, what happened was there were a lot of people very drunk, um, in, in those sort of depressed areas. And there was a woman, we were doing it on top of a, a social centre, it was, you know, the only way of keeping um, any kind of law and order, order together. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a woman up there who'd been sort of sitting on the wall just drinking and she just fell off it. Oh, yeah, yeah. As I said, you know, they're really deeply rooted in uh, mm-hmm. in their Irish roots, that's for sure. That's great stuff. So you two from uh, around 1980 and uh, a very early career interview with them. And just like some other bands, like The Police and like some other bands that we've talked about, we have a ton of interviews oh, with you two. So from various eras. And of course... You know, I love that early music, I really do, but boy, they hit it right on the nose with the Joshua Tree from beginning to end. That album is great, and I know we have an interview from that era as well. Excellent. All right, so coming up next, as promised, a 2008 very early career interview with Lady Gaga. These guys are getting me all riled up, declaring their love for We Built This City by Starship, which I actually call by a different different name, but I can't even use it on, on the air right now on the oh. podcast. But, <laughs> oh, man. But, okay. Yeah, I know where so this is here, going. here is why mm-hmm. I hold that song in such low regard, okay? First of all, it's originally Jefferson Airplane, a great band that should have known better than to perform this song, okay? Because they have such... Deep roots and su- such integrity in the San Francisco music and all that. Then, 
Bernie Taupin co-wrote the song. You remember what I said about Jimmy Webb a couple weeks ago, how he should have a Grammy taken away for writing MacArthur Park? Oh, no. You didn't like me then? coming back to this. Bernie Taupin should have at least one of his awards taken away for co-writing We Built This City. Okay. Then there's that. The the Starship were a really anti-corporate entity. And they write a song about being an anti-corporate entity in We Built This City. But it sounds like it was written by a corporation and performed as a jingle, a typical 80s jingle for how groundbreaking, how much integrity they have. It's awful. And also, the song, when they go... There's more? Oh, yeah. Okay, so listen. We built this city. We built this city on rock and we built this city. Like, it doesn't even scan. They, They have to interrupt themselves to make it work. I rest my case. It doesn't even work. You know, (laughs) when a song affects you, it's not a question of whether it works or whether it scans or whether it's corporate or whether it's idealized music. They changed membership. Mickey Thomas joined the band. Mm -hmm. They were no longer Jefferson Airplane. Right. Marty Ballin left. Okay. Yes, Grace Slick was still there. Yes. But they were a different band. Okay. And I think they had to have a different name. Don't care. And a different sound. <laughs> and you want to put down Mickey Thomas? How about if you listen to uh, Fooled Around and Fell in Love oh, by listen. Alvin Bishop? No, I The guy's lo- a formidable singer. Oh, I have no problem with Mickey Thomas's performance. He also sang Jane by Jefferson Starship. A great song. I don't even hate the band. I just hate that song. And shame on them for doing the song. Wow. <laughs> Okay. Okay. You know, I don't even think we have time for for Lady Gaga anymore. <clears throat> okay, so let's get to the first part of the Lady Gaga interview. This is uh, like a, like we said earlier, 2008. Going back to the very beginning, Just Dance had just become a big hit, and she's walking into our studios, and people know very very little about her except the song is really good, and there was something bigger and and deeper about this song than a lot of dance songs from that era. The keyboards were so good. Like, they were almost, like, crunchy, the keyboards. Like, they were big, and they sounded deep, as opposed to thin and cheesy. Like We Built the City. Like We Built the... Oh, yeah. man. Here we go. Stop it now. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so here she is. Here's Lady Gaga in conversation with Richie Favalero. Outer space, the lost city of Atlantis, maybe New York City. Who knows where she came from, but she's here now, <laughs> Lady good. Gaga. Hello, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great, thank you. You know, I was having a hard time trying to decide what to wear today until I told myself, you know, it really doesn't matter what I put on because nothing's going to compare to you. Uh, <laughs> well, black is always good. Yes, well, it's a neutral color. But look, <laughs> your your outfits, your 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 stage costumes, is it true that you designed them yourself? Yeah, I actually made this whole outfit I'm wearing today. You made it? You, you sewed? You I didn't sew it. I, I designed you it. You put it together. And had it sewn, yeah. And so who are some of your fashion inspirations? Well, uh, I love the Italians. So, you know, Versace, Gabbana, uh, Fendi, Valentino. I love all those designers. I've been really inspired by um, the House of Margiela this season. And uh, Grace Jones, David Bowie, Andy Warhol. 
you know. Oh, yeah. The it's, 70s. You're a designer. You're a musical prodigy. Learning the piano by ear, no less, at the age of four. You couldn't learn any earlier? I feel like my mother wrote that bio. It's like every time <laughs> someone says it, I'm like, it's so bragging. But I did learn piano by ear, yeah. Yeah, and you've always been an entertainer ever since you were young. Yeah, I just, uh, yeah, I just kind of was born that way. Well, what was the evolution a little bit? Like, how did you go from learning the piano to wanting to be this awesomely different this pop strange, star? strange pop artist. <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, I played piano. Then um, I took dance classes, went to acting classes. I, um, you know, I used to, you know, do musicals and plays and all kinds of concerts. And I started writing music when I was 13. And, you know, then, like, film stuff in high school, photography. I mean, I just kind of did everything. And, you know, my parents let me be an artist. They never tried to stop me. They were like, okay. They never pushed me, but they never stopped me. So um, I just kind of did whatever I wanted in terms of art. And then after a year at... Um, the musical theater program and the music school at uh, Tisch in New York, I left because I just felt like I wasn't learning enough and I wanted to be like really playing out and working. So I just sort of made, took a vow, you know, you, you, that's, I think the most important thing about, um, my transition is yes, I've been doing this for a long time, but I really committed to it. And I took a vow to my work, and I said, like, I must make this work, and I must do it well. So, and, the, and then by the time you were 20, you were, well, you wrote a song for the Pussycat Dolls. Well, I've been writing, yeah, for them, for, uh, I did stuff for Britney, I did stuff for um, the New Kids on the Block on their next record. Beyonce just cut a record that I did, I'm really excited to hear that. Awesome, you're, you're it. Well, it's fun, you know, I think, and I think it's cool because it's usually not young writers, you know, they're usually a little bit older, more seasoned, they've been in the business for a long time, so I just sort of sprouted as like the young, the young artist from New York. Let's talk about the fame. Your debut CD, just released on Tuesday, how do you feel to have it finally out there? I'm so excited, I was nervous, you know, that's my like, my body of work, that's like the last two and a half years of my life. And I was very nervous, but excited. And um, I don't know, because of Canada, it's number one. I mean, it's just, I, I don't even know when the last time I could say that a new artist had their album come out number one when they are fairly unknown in a lot of the other parts of the world. That's how much we love you. Oh, I love you guys. It's great. <laughs> it's actually, I'm excited though. The, you know, the singles doing well in Sweden, Australia, New Zealand. Germany, Spain, it's it's coming up. So uh, because of Canada, you know, we have this like amazing story. And the lead single, Just Dance, one of the biggest songs of the summer and about a night that even Tylenol could not remedy. No. But comes from an experience close to you. Yeah, it's just my life in New York. That's the party scene. I, I wrote that record after about a month and a half of, um, you know, kind of playing out more in the city and I was I was frustrated you know writing in the studio and my you know, songs were getting taken for other artists I was just like really frustrated so I took some time off and just did what I loved I played out I played every freaking club in sight and uh, 
called the label and was like, just give me one week with Red One in L.A. Just one week just to get out of New York and just write, write, write for one week straight. So they locked out the studio 24 hours a day for seven days. And I just didn't leave. And the first record that we did was Just Dance. So it was like, wait, it was like time, you know? Yeah. Time to write it. Now, if there's one thing, well, I mean, there, there's not even, I couldn't imagine there only being one thing to define you, but your live shows are incredible. What's it like for anybody who hasn't to, seen, to see Lady Gaga live? Well, it's, it's, not, it's not a concert. I mean, it is, but it isn't. It's a, I like to say that it's a pop show that belongs in a museum. Because <laughs> we, uh, you know, we make the clothing, we build the technology that's on the stage, um, we design the, you know, the, the choreography, we, we do the, um, you know, aesthetic design, like all the backdrops and stuff. So um, it feels a lot more like theater but it's a pop show. So, um, I don't know, for those of you listeners who like Meatloaf, you know, or like anything like that, you'll really enjoy the show. It's totally unlike anything you've seen before, and it will completely change the way that you hear the music. You know what I love about that interview is she has these grand, completely outsized ambitions. For sure. She's just not ashamed to put it right out there. She plans to change music, fashion, Technology, everything yeah. as we have come to know yeah. it, she's going to transform it for but, us. But there's not like a there's not a condescension in the way she says it. She's not she's mm-hmm. not hating everything that's come before. It's just a person confident in her own artistic abilities yeah. and is kind of joyful and gleeful about what she can bring to the party. I just love her in that interview. But I don't think I ever thought I would hear an artist like Lady Gaga compare herself. To meatloaf. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's crazy. And I know that she's a big Springsteen fan. I believe her, her dad is a big Springsteen fan. And so, of course, Springsteen's band, or at least part of it, played on the meatloaf album, Bad Out of Hell. And so there's that mm-hmm. sound with those, you know, ringing pianos and that right. kind of epic uh, storytelling melodramatic quality that sometimes was in uh, Springsteen's music. But that's where the comparison ends. But boy, she was she's comparing herself favorably to Meatloaf. I, I just love it. And it was a, a bit of a surprise. Did you notice at one point in the interview, she was just casually giving an answer and she said, well, I guess I was born this way. Yes. Oh, I know. There's a little premonition yes, there, huh? for sure. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> love that. Right now, we rewind the time machine to about 1984. Upon the release of First Offense, the debut album by one Corey Hart. Now, you'll hear by this interview that, the, that this is a brand new artist, someone that we knew virtually nothing about, so we're literally asking him everything but how to spell his name, right? Like, <laughs> um, but What's it's, your favorite color? <laughs> that, yeah. that kind of thing. And, um, you know, it's so interesting to know that within a few weeks and months of this interview, Corey Hart is going to shoot to fame, right, in Canada and the United States and around the world based on sunglasses at night. So I think that kind of the innoc- the innocence and the ignorance that comes with a brand new artist, the innocence of him... And, and the ignorance and the on our part, right? Of our, of, on our part of not knowing a whole heck of a lot about him because there's not, you know, you can't look it up on online because there was no online then. And, and you know, we, you would get vague press releases and you'd hear rumors about who played on the album. Right. But sometimes it's even before the album came out. So, so this is quite interesting. It's Corey Hart in conversation. Where's home for Corey Hart? 
Home is Montreal. Is that uh, where you grew up? Because um, I can't uh, I can't recall the name from past musical excursions to Montreal. No, not many people can in in the, in the country yet. Uh, I lived in Spain up until I was about ten years old, and then uh, I moved back to Montreal. I was born in Montreal, mm-hmm. and uh, I worked in New York a bit for about a year and a half, and then I came back home. So, how old are you now? Twenty-two. And you spent how much of that time in Montreal? Accumulation of about seven, eight years. So that's still home for you? Oh, yeah, Montreal's home. That's where I live. You live now. You have a new album. I guess it's it's called First Offense. Is it your first record? It's my first record, yeah. There was another record called First Offense by uh, The Inmates. Yeah, someone mentioned that to me after we decided on the title. <laughs> it's <laughs> so still it was... a great title. I think you're okay. Okay. Um, was it The Inmates' first album? Yes, it was. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. You're with Aquarius Records. Um, how did that happen to come to pass? Well, I, uh, I'd done some demos in New York where I had worked with uh, Billy Joel's band and put together some fine demos. And uh, I come back home to Montreal, and it was just much of a whim. I just decided I'd go down to see Aquarius Records because I figured April Wine, you know, having the success that they had with April Wine, I mm-hmm. figured they're in my own hometown. I should go see them. And uh, it, it, it was just an immediate response between the two of us. We just sort of clicked. And uh, Well, not everybody can say they worked with Billy Joel's band, so I guess we have to find out how that came to pass. All right. Well, I was, uh, I was doing a studio session in, uh, in Montreal at the time, and Richie Canada, who uh, is Billy Joel's saxophone player, mm-hmm. was, uh, was in town, and I got in touch with him, sent over a tape of one of my tunes, and uh, asked if he'd play on it. Anyways, he, he came over... And he told me if ever I was interested in coming down to New York, that he could, uh, he'd like to do some to do some work with me. And uh, lo and behold, I go down there, and uh, he's got the whole band ready to play for me. <laughs> so it was uh, it was quite incredible. You must have some. Uh, you made some friends along the way. If uh, Billy Joel's band, I, I also hope so. somebody mentioned Paul Anka in passing. How does that connection? Paul Anka. Um, well, that was. That was much of a novelty. I was uh, 11 or 12 years old, just when I'd come back from Spain. Mm-hmm. And uh, my sister's a figure skater, and uh, she was in one of those ice follies or ice capage shows. And uh, she said she had a little brother that sang. And uh, So it was, it, was, it was a bit of a novelty. Uh, I ended up doing a single through his record company, or United Artists, which was his record company. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was th- nothing that I had written, and it was just uh, somewhat of a whim. Okay, we've got Billy Joel and uh, Richie Canada. And uh, one can't help but notice that Eric Clapton plays uh, on your new LP. Yes, he does. That's got to be a trip, and, and what's the story behind that? The story with Eric Clapton was I, uh, John Astley, the producer of the album, uh, was over in England, and uh, I played him the song on the keyboard. It was just uh, the ballad that we had on the album. And, uh, and he said to me, you know, that song, uh, that song's perfect for Eric Clapton. <laughs> oh, at first he says, that song's perfect for Eric, and I says, Eric says, yeah, Eric Clapton. I said, oh, come on, John, now don't say this to me. And he says, no, I'm serious. Anyways, he gave him a phone call and uh, sent over a, a tape, a demo of the song. A couple hours later, Eric Clapton was on the phone asking me if he could play on the song and just about dropped the phone. And, <laughs> and He'll say, said, I'll, I'll see if I can work you in, right? I said, yeah, it's just a thrill. It's just mm-hmm. an honor. He was uh, a perfect gentleman, and uh, he treated me with, uh, with respect that uh, I just was overwhelmed by it. How many songs did you go into the studio with, and how many did you actually cut? I went in, I went in with to the studio with uh, twelve songs, and uh, we came back with ten that we were happy with at the time, 
And then I wrote Sunglasses at Night, which uh, ended up being the first single. So we, we had come back with Ten, and, and I wrote this song, and I, and I said to the record company, I, I, I've got to go back and do this song because I think it's, it's just there's something awesome about this song. So it was an afterthought almost. It, it was. It, the record had been complete. We, we were just uh, doing some mixes on some of the other uh, tracks, but, but the album, I was back home in Montreal when I wrote it. And uh, two weeks later, I was back in Manchester, Revolution Studios, doing it. Is that a song that wrote itself, or uh, was it a struggle? It sounds like something you just, uh, it flows so naturally. Well, uh, And the feel was it almost was, the, like the, it. the struggle wasn't the way the song was, was conceived and, and written, but when we were in the studio, it had the most struggle to it because everyone had such strong feelings about the song. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, John, the, the vocal approach that, that, that I took on the song, John had uh, definite ideas about it, and I, and I did as well, and so uh, we knocked heads, but... But I think uh, John was right in, in, in uh, his approach of, of the vocal in that, in, that particular, in that particular case. That is the single. Have you done a video for it? No, I'm in town actually uh, doing some work with uh, Rob Courtley from Champagne Pictures, who's done some, some superb videos. He did uh, The Spoon's uh, latest video mm-hmm. and uh, Boys Brigade. And uh, so we're shooting uh, the video... Uh, in the next couple of days for sunglasses. Any idea what it's going to be like, what the uh, scenario is oh, shaping yeah. up as? But I guess I should... I'm going to wait for you to see it. All right. <laughs> is it, They're going to shoot it here? We're shooting it actually in the... What is it? Uh, Don, the Don Valley Jail? The Don Jail, the yeah. The Don Jail. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I, haven't, I haven't been there yet. <laughs> sunglasses at night at the Don Jail. <clears throat> okay. Uh, what's the story behind uh, the lyrics to Sunglasses at Night? Well, I, I'd actually... Written the song with the video in mind. It was one of the only songs that I, I had written that, that I was actually thinking of the video. And uh, when I had wrote it, I was I'd, I was just reading the George Orwell novel, 1984, which has all of a sudden become really, because chronologically it's mm-hmm. 1984. Uh, and so I had this idea where where a society would be where you would have to go out wearing your sunglasses at night. That was the, the policy dictated. Uh, but but it, it, in terms of a song, uh, it, it's more so just... Uh, a relationship between a uh, male female where uh, the guy's going around watching her deceive him but he feels he's got this uh, shield to protect him and that's his sunglasses i think everyone has that 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 security when they're wearing uh, either sunglasses or some other prop so that that's or a mustache or, or a mustache or beard big or nose or something <laughs> speak for yourself <laughs> okay uh, all right oh nice finish good stuff. okay good stuff <laughs> i interviewed Corey back then too it was uh, on the all night show city limits which right? preceded uh, much music and was just uh, Toronto and area only. Right. And uh, this was 83. And he was terrific. He was just a real gentleman, mm-hmm. very articulate, very thoughtful about what he was doing. And and now I think we look back and we forget how huge a star Corey Hart became. That's right. And yes, sunglasses broke him, but Never Surrender was even bigger. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, Never Surrender, that Boy in the Box album, right? So, is Never Surrender from Boy in the Box, or is it from no, the one, or First so. Fence? Yeah. So that was a huge album for him, and, um, and uh, you know, he was right up there with Brian Adams in terms of the amount of sales in Canada. And, um, and you know, he did not, like, after a while, he he just stopped recording, and he just decided to live a life and, you know, uh, have a lovely um, uh, family and everything like that. But he came back about five years ago to perform a special broadcast and a special concert with us here in Toronto at the radio station, right? So it was an amazing performance, and he did never surrender. And boy, he threw himself into that song. And of course, he did Sunglasses, and he did It Ain't Enough, which is one of my favorites. And... uh, 
is a very committed performer. He really is. I remember yeah. uh, Rob Courtley, who directed all his early videos, saying right. Co- and Corey was a spitter. <laughs> <laughs> he said he was just so intense when he was when he yes. was singing. He did a viral video. I'm sure it's still out there of the U2 song One. Oh, a friend okay. of mine, Rob Wells, was playing piano on that, and it was a fantastic performance. Oh, great! Yeah, I mean, this is very recent, in the last couple of years. Oh, okay, excellent. Yeah, but he lives, I think, in the Bahamas now. Um. Yeah, and he lived in Spain for a while, and uh, but yeah, I, I'm not quite sure where he is after Being all a family time. man, like you say. That's right, and I think his daughter is a big swimmer, I th- and I think she swims for Canada. I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm wrong on that, but in the meantime, let's finish things up as always with The Wisdom of Dave. Here's David Lee Roth. The next Van Halen tour will set another Guinness Book of World's Records uh, will set another record in the Guinness Book in terms of the amount of weight and people and the structure that we're taking on an around-the-world tour. A lot of bands have designed these humongous constructions. It looks like the Arco Towers. They set it up in L.A., they play five days. They take it out to New York, they play five days. They call that the United States Tour. Oh, freeze, wrong. (laughs) There's a lot. The world is not L.A. and New York. The world is Ogden, Utah, and Bristol, England. I know it pains you to hear that. <laughs> pains me to say it. <laughs> no, it's true. The world is not L.A. and New York. Those are two separate islands in the sun somewhere. The rest of the world's very different, and they deserve it as much, if not more, to see that production that you're going to take out on the road. So what we're taking is upwards of 120 tons of equipment. We're up to like nine trucks, 75 people, the whole, the whole gang. A lot of people see us when we're on the road and they say, God, it's just like a big family. All oh, you guys, everybody knows each other. I tend to think of it more as a, as a gang. <laughs> well, which would you rather say? If somebody says, oh, you have a lovely family or wow, what a gang. Ah, Dave. Now, is there really sort of a bottomless pit of, of Davisms for us for oh, yeah. your future shows? Oh, yeah. We've got a few. We've got several left, so we'll see. We'll see, we'll see how <laughs> much you can string take. this thing out. Yeah. If if people start messaging us like, stop for the love of God, no more Dave, no more wisdom of Dave, then we'll stop. But we're yeah. going to keep going as long as we can. Okay. Do right. you know? By the way, did you notice that Adam Clayton from U2 talked about forming a band as being like in a gang? Oh, and that's what Dave just said. Yeah. Yeah, they're two peas different in point a of view. Two, yeah, two right. peas <laughs> in a different pod, for sure. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much for joining us. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic. I'm Christopher Ward. Thanks. Please join us next time.